0: Today, uh, we start 2 Peter. So, um, we accomplished something last week, which we rarely accomplished. We finished the book. <coughs> so, uh, we rejoiced in that, had a little party for those of you who weren't here, exchanged gifts. Uh, all of that is not true, but we did finish the book. Um, 2 Peter, if, if you're interested, I'll go through a couple of these on page uh, 10 of, uh, of the book. Uh, note uh, just a couple of introductory matters, if I if I might. And that may or may not be important, but I'll go through them uh, somewhat hurriedly, but I think it's important to do that. The author is uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter. Um, to be honest with you, um, there was quite a bit of um, consideration because the Style of Second Peter is different, and by that I mean the writing style is different than uh, the the writing style, the grammar and syntax and vocabulary. That's what I mean by that. And that was, in a way, that was a silly debate because they were saying, "Well, because the vocabulary and style is different, therefore it's a different author." Not necessarily, because it's a totally different purpose for the book, and so Peter would be using. Uh, some different words and and some different uh, figures of speech, metaphors, than he did in the first. So that kind of quickly was settled. So uh, for the most part, there's not a lot of dispute about it, but that was much more than the first epistle of Peter. It's probably written about A.D. 67, right before Peter was executed. Um, As you may or may not know, just I'll quickly review this, if it's important or not. But the... uh, The increasing um, intensity, the opposition of the Roman Empire to Christianity is growing decade after decade after decade. And by the late 60s, and I'm talking 67, 68, Emperor Nero, you know that name? You ever heard of him, Nero the Caesar, turns on Christianity and he blames them for a lot of things, including that very famous fire in Rome that destroyed a good part of the city, um, he affixed blame for that to Christians, which was not true. Most historians argue that Nero did that so he could rebuild the city. So he actually, they, they, he set the fire so he could rebuild the city. That's irrelevant to this this book. But I say it only because Peter was, along with Paul, were killed uh, by Emperor Nero, Susan Nero, at the heights of those persecutions. Both men, I believe, there is a little dispute on the exact year, but... I believe both men were executed um, by Emperor Nero in A.D. 68. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he would not have been crucified; he would have been decapitated. However, Peter, who was not a Roman citizen, would have been crucified. And do you know the tradition? Yeah, that he was crucified. He chose to be crucified upside down. That is a tradition. Uh, Some of the early and early, I mean, second-century writers talk about Peter. <clears throat> there is an apocryphal book that talks about that. Uh, it's just impossible to verify it, but it would be reasonable because Peter said, "I do not deserve to be crucified in the same way as my Savior. I will be crucified upside down." So, what that means, he was nailed to a cross, but it was turned upside down, and that's how he died. So, this is. Um, and I see no reason to doubt that. Uh, this epistle are the last words of Peter. And it is uh, largely, largely written. I've talked a little bit about the background. It's largely written to deal with, again, you, so many of the New Testament books are, are dealing with this, to deal with false teaching, uh, the, the early heresies. And Peter is writing to correct them. And uh, therefore... There's a little more of an emphasis on doctrine than there was in the first epistle, although that wasn't absent in the first epistle. There's a little more of an emphasis on that. And if you look just at the very beginning of the epistle, you see it in verse 2. You see it in verse 3. Knowledge of God, knowledge of him. Peter is going to focus on the content, the content, the doctrine of what the early church uh, teaches. And that's knowledge of God, knowledge of him. And knowledge involves content. Uh, do you understand what I mean by that sentence? Knowledge involves content? Okay. And so that's kind of what's going on here. So it's a, it's a wonderful book. It really is. <clears throat> it's it's a, a thrilling book to study. But it is almost every phrase we have to take apart. In a way, that's not unusual in, in this class particularly. But we do. I mean, to really get the full... Uh, Meaning of everything Peter's doing. So if, I mean, unless you really object to it, that's what I'm going to do. We're going to go through this slowly because it's rich, and you'll see it right away at the beginning of the of the uh, of the epistle. All right, there are just a couple. I, I gave you a little <clears throat> a little chart there that just lists some of the very important words in that little chart there on page ten. NIV puts those things out, and then on page eleven, I have uh, the synthetic chart. I don't know if you're interested in those things or not. But I like those. I had to do um, a synthetic chart when I was in graduate school for every book of the Bible. And um, uh, not too many years ago, maybe three, four, I found Swindoll has put all of his synthetic charts online. And his are much better than mine. So I use his. (laughs) But uh, And again, I don't know if that's even a value to, uh, that I was taught to do that. It's a way to trace the argument of a book. In the Bible, in all 66 books, um, you can do that, and you can see what Swindoll has done. He correctly just uh, follows the chapter structure, the three chapters of the book, and a call to spiritual maturity, focus on the false teachers, and then most importantly, the anticipation of Jesus' return. Future promise should determine present behavior. That's a major promise of the Bible. Future promise should determine present behavior. So that's kind of where we're at in the overview. I, real quick, five minutes. Any questions? Just to highlight a couple of points about the book as we get started with it. It is a different emphasis in 1 Peter. Major theme of First Peter was how to deal with suffering. The major theme of Second Peter is how to respond to false teaching. If you want a synopsis in one sentence, that's the difference. All right, the salutation, the greeting, whatever you want to call it. I want you to notice something. I'm not sure all the translations don't go out of their way to focus on this, but I want you to notice something. Simeon Peter. Simeon is the Hebrew for Simon. And so for reasons that are not clear, we don't know why Peter chose to do this, but he identifies himself with his Hebrew followed by his Greek. Simeon, Hebrew, Petra, Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, is the the Greek for Peter. And so he's just identifying himself in that way. It's kind of interesting. Do all of your translations have Simeon? No. They don't. Okay, do do, do any of your translations have Simeon? Okay, a couple of them do, because I didn't check all of them. My ESV does, and several others. But it's just, that's a little nuance. It isn't that important. But I thought I'd mention it again uh, as is often true of a lot of the writers of the new testament he identifies himself as a servant and an apostle of jesus christ servant is is doulos which is literally a bond servant you you could legitimately translate that slave however in the i mean normally in the in the first century world to be called a servant is to be called a slave so that's why we're using that. An apostle, let me ask you this question. You should know this. It's a good review. What was the primary requirement to be called an apostle? To see Jesus. To have seen a resurrected Christ. Yeah. That's right. To have seen a resurrected Christ. And of course, Peter would meet that requirement. And so it's just a review of, of that. Now, the second part of verse 1, it, there's a lot there. Let me read it and we'll take it apart to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's work our way backwards. First of all, note of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is one of the many, many proof texts you can use for the deity of Jesus. Because there's one preposition of our God and Savior. And the coor- and I'm getting a little grammatical here, but that shouldn't be hard for you to follow. And the coordinating conjunction and makes those two qualities equal: God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now did I, did I lose you there? Are, are you with me? in other words, this is just grammatically. You can't dispute that. Grammatically, what Peter is saying is, Jesus Christ is Savior and God. And, I mean, it's just grammatically, that's the point. There's an equality with that coordinating conjunction. He's God and Savior. So it's just, it's a wonderful little grammatical tidbit that affirms what you see all over the New Testament, the deity of Jesus Christ, so... Now, continuing to work ourselves back, again, it's going to depend on all the translations. But the verb to those who have obtained should immediately be followed by the the prepositional phrase, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, let me, it sounds a little odd, but this would be to, to make, Make the verb and the prepositional phrase close together to those who have obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ a faith of equal standing with ours. You follow me? In other words, the prepositional phrase by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior Jesus Christ flows from obtained. How did you obtain it? You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. It came From the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which you appropriated to your life, how? By faith. By faith. So, that last phrase, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Savior, we could use one of the Apostle Paul's favorite words. I mean, it's all over his writings, all over Galatians, all over Romans. Justification. So let's paraphrase it. Obtained through or by justification of Jesus Christ, you have faith of equal standing. So it's it's the focus of, of, the, of the language of verse 1 is on, uh, condensing it down, the justification that Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, offers us. And the result is, A faith of equal standing. So, now, did I lose you, or are you with me? Rob?
1: Well, it's interesting how he uses the past tense, have obtained. He's not saying will obtain or are obtaining.
0: Or or, or working toward obtaining or something like that. Have obtained is the
1: final justification. Yeah.
0: So, Peter doesn't use that term as frequently as Paul does. The term, I mean that term, justification. But that's clearly what he's saying, because that's exactly the major theme of the New Testament. So I just don't, I don't want you to, to miss that, how important that is. Um, the theology of verse 1 is the focus on what Christ has done for us and the righteousness he offers us. Remember, justification means to be declared righteous. That's what that means. You know that. I, we've gone through that a lot. If I could hold you to definitions every now and then, give you a pop quiz and ask you to. But I won't ever do that, because then the, this room would empty, and we'd have to tell, home oh, instead, we're not going to have the class anymore.
1: <clears throat> could, could I I mean, he says the faith the same as ours.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that speak at all about differential in the strengths of one's faith? I mean, one would presume that Peter had an, an enormously strong faith, and then you have, who was it, the centurion who said, I believe, it help my own belief, who still demonstrated faith, but maybe less?
0: I'm that? not sure. That's a great question, Jim. I'm not sure the focus of the phrase, ESV translates it, faith of equal standing. I'm not sure the focus is on the quality of the faith. Right. The focus is on the standing of your faith. The
1: presence of it.
0: You, you, where, where you are. So, in, in other words... Um, what Peter is addressing, and this was a, this was really a big issue in the early church, um, Jews who have all the heritage of a thousand years—it's about what or, or two thousand years, excuse me—from Abraham till Christ—and all the richness of all the rituals—and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously, they're more spiritual than you, pagan Gentiles, who come to faith. <laughs> You follow me? That was, that was really an issue. And who was arguing that? The Jewish Christians. We have the inside track. And we finally realized that we're completed now. And you remember, all the early leaders of the church were Jewish. You know, Peter's Jewish, Paul's Jewish. And so there was, there was this, are there two levels of spirituality here? And again, the New Testament drives this home. No. Galatians 3.28 in Christ, there's not Jew or Gentile, male or female flavor there's equal equality. Ephesians chapter two verses eleven through twenty two Paul is he is hammering at that in Christ, in the church, in the body of Christ, there's absolute equality spiritually speaking between Jew, Gentile, and anyone else. So the equal standing is a position statement. Not a quality statement. That is a great question. I really am glad you asked that, because it is important to not see this as focusing on quality of faith, but on your position.
1: Mm.
0: And so that's, that's important for you and me today. Um, in Christ, there's abs- in terms of spiritual, uh, in terms of spirituality, there's absolute equality at the cross. And this, by the way, uh, to me, this is really important because I'm seeing this. You know, a lot of I'm seeing this kind of resurrected again. You see this that you almost are getting the sense there's a super spiritual class of people, and then there's the rest of us. You know, I mean, there's just there's a there's a there's a group that's made it. They're the spiritual elite, and then there's the rest of us. That's horrible. That's terrible theology. That is wrong. And it defies everything that the scriptures say about the nature of the church. Now, are there people that are farther along, and farther I mean distant, farther along in their walk with the Lord in in spiritual maturity? Well, yeah, it's called sanctification. But in terms of position, which is what Peter's focusing on here because he brings up the righteousness of of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, it's the, the absolute equality at the cross. And that's, again, that is really important because these false teachers are coming into these early churches and saying, you know, there's a special knowledge you need to acquire. A special gnosis, Greek word, you need to acquire. And I'm here to help you acquire that. And when you acquire this mystical, visionary understanding, you're part of that super elite. There's a cult today It's not growing particularly, but it's still around. It's still very uh, ubiquitous. Isn't that a great word, ubiquitous? (laughs) They're they're kind of everywhere present. You see them. The Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witness, based on the premise, there are 144,000 elite. And your goal is to be part of that. There's a lot of ways in which you get to that. And it's just, the scriptures... when you hear anyone start to talk like that, turn the TV set off, throw the book away, mm-hmm. slam the door in their face, or I mean, whatever, that's, that is not how the Lord wants it to look at it. Now, there are different role responsibilities, different assignments, but at the cross, there are not two levels of spiritual uh, people. So. Jim, I used to go to a Pentecostal church. It sounds like you were describing that church. That that uh, you know, there's there's those of us that speak in tongues, and then there's all the rest. of it. I was hoping no one would bring that up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that can that can result from um, from uh, some Pentecostal teaching. Um, Again, I, I'm not sure I want to go down this bunny trail really, really far, but I'll go down that just one sentence. Well, I'll let you off. No, but, no, but you are right, because um, the historic classical Pentecostalism, which began in 1901 at the Bethel Bible Institute in Topeka, Kansas, at the Little Institute taught by a guy named Charles Parham, that speaking in tongues is the sign of spirit baptism, which you must seek. It's a subsequent act of grace by God that you must seek. And if you don't have it, you are not spiritually empowered. And you are a second, one preacher used to say, you are a second-class Christian. And so you must seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the sign of that, the evidence of that is you will speak in tongues. And honestly, that, that's as far as I want to go with that there there have been Pentecostalism is a movement that is really fragmented they're really fragmented quite a bit and um um many of the nuances of the Pentecostal movement would not agree with that anymore they would you know dismiss that, but they're still're they're still very much a part of that strain and depending on you know, there's a lot of that, but there are one or two programs that I've observed over the last several years on television, some of those obscure channels, you know, if you're surfing, you see them, that still preach that. and still, But it's not as, quite as popular. But Christ Community Church, I don't know how much you know about it. Christ Community Church, what used to be called the Omaha Gospel Tabernacle, split over that issue. They split over that very issue of speaking in tongues as a mark of spirit baptism. And that led to the formation of Trinity Church and then Christ Community Church. That split caused those two churches to come about. Now both have you know changed quite a bit over the years. I'm not sure why I mentioned all that, but just because that, that issue that was many decades ago that, that split occurred, but that, that issue was a very central issue in a lot of conservative Protestant uh, churches in the 1950s and 1960s. And even into the '70s a little bit, and a lot of churches split over, it. and the most famous one in Ma- I wasn't here at that time, but I, I um, learned about that uh, over the years. That was a really, really big issue in omaha i I don't think it's a big issue in Omaha anymore i mean i don't I mean I was fairly widely connected with a lot of churches, and a lot of movements when I was president, and even today I'm not, I don't think I've heard anybody really talking about issue for quite a long time anyway. But they still have, I
1: mean, not about that speaking of tongues issue, but there's still some churches in
0: town that believe that there's more than Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, there there's there are. Around, but, but it's it's not the kind of like it was when like Omaha Gospel Tabernacle called church split over that. You don't see as much of that as as you, you used to. Now the church splits are over other things. <laughs> yeah, but anyway. So I mean, verse one, which we're, we've only done one verse, and it's ten minutes after twelve. So <clears throat> just want to remind you of how slow we're going. But no, that's all right. It's a that's a rich verse theologically. You have de- uh, an affirmation of the deity of Christ. You have the reminder that faith and salvation comes through the righteousness of Christ. And there is pure equality at the foot of the cross because of that. All right, now, verse 2 alerts us to the primary point of this epistle. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's, that's not a particularly unusual part of a salutation, but what follows is, multiply you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. The word knowledge there is epigenosco. I know that doesn't mean anything, but that is a major word. That is a, a major word in this epistle. That the knowledge of God as opposed to the error of the false teachers. Men, our saving faith is simple and childlike and and it's characterized by humility. But when we speak of the faith or the Christian faith, that's talking about content. That's talking about doctrine. You understand the difference? Nobody's moving their head, nobody, okay. Living statues is the demeanor of my class, so I don't know what body language is, uh, I don't know how to read it. But you know, saving faith is the childlike response to the gospel. But when we speak of the Christian faith, we're talking about content. We're talking about doctrine. And that's what he's focusing on here. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. The the grace and peace is going to be multiplied with doctrinal purity and clarity of understanding of who God is and of who Jesus Christ is. So doctrine matters. I know I've uh, I, I can't remember the last time I said it, but I know I've said this many times. <clears throat> the theme of the pastoral epistles, which is First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, the theme of that thesis of those three epistles is sound doctrine produces godly living. And so Peter is getting at that here: that you know, peace, the grace and peace that we seek, comes through a proper understanding of who God is. Because he's the source of both, so right out of the chute, Peter's nailing his main emphasis here: a proper understanding, a proper knowledge, a proper content doctrinally of who God is and who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what he's about to to, to walk, uh, well, walk us it's through. really to to get that knowledge. As yes, I understand it, they didn't have the Bible at that time. They just
1: there's two letters, and
0: they had- Well, they had, uh, in, a, in a sense, you are right if you think of the fully recognized 66 books of the Bible. They had the 39 books of the Old Testament, and they had a number of, uh, this is A.D. 67, so um, Mark's Gospel, which was written in A.D. 49, is circulating very widely. Uh, Luke's Gospel is now being written, it's written about this time, um, uh, uh, quite a few of the epistles of Paul: First Timothy, uh, sorry, First Saint Corinthians, Galatians, the first one that he wrote, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon—they are all circulating very widely. And um, Peter alludes to that; he alludes to and quotes from Paul, and says Paul's is authoritative of the rest of the Scripture, as he as he says. So, in, you're right in the sense of a fully you know canonized sixty six books that everybody agrees and recognizes scripture we're not quite there yet by AD 67, but by the end of the century we will be morator canon shows that some others the other um, the, the, the other point about this is um, knowledge of God and Christ Jesus our Lord is hard work. Do you understand what I mean by that? Not by osmosis. Jim's really, really smart. I mean, he really is. I've known him for a long time. But I don't gain a lot of his brilliance by just sitting here, and it just, by osmosis, it just comes to me. I have to sit and listen to him and hear him talk and hear him explain things, and I get it. And I begin to get the effects of all his brilliance and knowledge and understanding. I now, mean, he is. He's a really smart guy. But I'm saying all that because that's why if you are committed to sound doctrine, you have to spend time digging into it. You have to you, you have to be willing. I wrote in at the top of every one of my syllabi: um, <clears throat> Justification is by faith. Knowledge of the Word of God is by works. <laughs> Charles Simeon said that in the late 19th century, and he's right. Now, what all I'm saying is. I'm assuming that is one of the reasons you come to a study like this. You have an interest in a deeper knowledge and understanding of the Word of God. And as you go through that, you are getting a deeper knowledge and understanding of who God is, what his attributes are, what he's like, and what he's doing. What's his plan? What's his program? And as you know, it's largely redemptive. So Peter is is really kind of laying it on the line here, doctrine is really important. And if you are not interested in that, or you go to a church that's not interested in that, that's not its emphasis, would you do me a favor and change churches? I don't mean to be mean, but uh, we don't need any more shallow, superficial, feel-good Christianity. We need people who are developing a passion for the Lord and a passion to understand his word, which requires hard work. And, I, that, sounds, I, and that sounds so negative. I, I don't mean it to sound negative, but it, it, it requires just a commitment. And it, it means that you're, just, you're going to make it a part of your week to do some of that. Okay? Verse 3. Now, this next paragraph, because I'm calling in my notes there, the growth of the Christian in the first couple of verses, deal with the basis for our growth. Look at this language. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It may be a little different than the one, because some of this is, These are difficult words, a couple of these, and how to put them. His divine power has granted to us all things, you ought to underline that, that pertain to life and godliness through. That should be the preposition. It should be translated through in your Bible. Because that is a preposition of means. How do I understand the divine power, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through what? Knowledge of him. So again, there's that phrase, knowledge. Knowledge of him, knowledge of God. So for me, I have to understand all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. It doesn't come by osmosis. I don't pull it out of the thin air. It insists upon content and doctrine of who God is. Right? That's what he's saying. Knowledge of him who called us to to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having an escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Whew. A loaded three, uh, two verses, verse 3 and verse 4. Uh, just loaded. So let's... Let's take it apart again and then try to put it back together. Uh, Are there any major issues with your translation? Or is it fairly close to the way mine read? All right. His divine power. Let's start with that. His divine power. Now, the his, that's a pronoun. So the his refers back to the previous verse. God and Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power. Because we learned in the salutation that Jesus is both Savior and God. So his divine power has been granted to us. That's amazing. His divine power has been granted to us. I mean, grant, it's not something, we, I mean, you, the, that's a wonderful way to translate it. Grant means I didn't earn it, I didn't merit it. I didn't get a bunch of bounty points in my, granted it's, it's an act of God's grace he's granted this to us but his divine power what does that mean?
1: well it's it implies so? this ability to do his miracles and everything of his ability but that's clearly not the case
0: Well, it could. I mean, the early uh, apostles were able to do some of that uh, as they made the case for Christianity in that uh, early world of the first century. Would it be the Holy Spirit? Okay. All right. The Holy Spirit, and he will come up later on, but the Holy Spirit is the key to this divine power. Mm. Um. What does that mean, though? What divine power? Uh, am I going to look at a wall and blow it apart? Am I going to raise people from the dead? Um, am I going to uh, heal people of cancerous disease? Or, <clears throat> is it a
1: personal relationship that we have with God and we can speak to God through the Holy Spirit? And the power is just a calming nature that God can bless us with to get through some of the things that you couldn't get through on your own. You you can lean on. It. You can. It's, it's not like it's not like you can like laser vision with your eyes or something. But it's more of of, of just that that He's on our side. He's right there with us. And he's okay. Got,
0: now uh, you're you're. He knew
1: us when, before we were born. Okay. He knew us and he. That's the power. Okay.
0: And we know, uh, Matt and I had this all arranged. He wasn't supposed to come. I called him and asked him to. No. The key to this is the phrase life and godliness. Life and godliness. It's divine power granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life is eternal life. Godliness is is becoming transformed into the image of the Son of God, which is God's goal for us. Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.17 and 18. God is transforming us into the image of his Son. And the means of that is the divine power that is now available to us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. In other words, just in a few phrases, Peter, I mean, this is, this is just an incredible introduction to the, to, to the, to the uh, epistle. This verse 3 is it's just a remarkable summary of major parts of the New Testament. So, again, let's work our way backwards. Life and godliness, all things that pertain to life and godliness, has been granted to us by means of the divine power of God. This is what's available to us. Um, The resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to us. The power to break the bondage of sin in our lives is now available to us. The power to break the old habits and patterns of life that was a part of our past and substitute it with the new habits and new patterns according to righteousness. I'm, I'm using phrases from other parts of the New Testament that are available to us. So the
1: question you want to see the God is yeah. that's that sanctification piece.
0: Yes, exactly. That's
1: that piece
0: that... That's right. Grace to give you the peace. That's right. V- verse 3 is dealing with sanctification. It's not dealing with justification. It's dealing with, a, you, you. he's writing to people, verse 1, who have experienced justification. Now, this is focusing on your life now. The divine power of God has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the divine power is now available in these categories of life, eternal life, And godliness. Now, by the way, just a quick, quick bunny chart, real quick. When does eternal life begin? The moment you trust Jesus, eternal life begins. Now that sounds strange, because you're, wait a minute, I still have a body that's deteriorating, I don't feel like I used to 20 years ago. But it's eternal life in terms of that position and identity of who you are. You have begun a relationship with the eternal, infinite God, and your focal point is the eternal destiny I have. I'm now living for eternity. Again, we've talked about this before, but I look at my work, my vocation, through the grid of eternity. Because in Colossians 3.24, I learn that as I do my work to the glory of God, he says, there's an eternal reward for that. I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know the tactile, tangible reward. I don't know what that means. But that's important to God. I'm to do all things to the glory of God. Paul says, "I don't in Philippians, I don't look back. I look forward, pressing toward the high calling which is in Christ Jesus. That's an eternal perspective on how I'm living my life. That's why when I define it, which I just tried to do, eternal life begins the moment you put your faith in Christ. You now have an eternal perspective, an eternal dimension of things so that you are now beginning to take on and consciously live the godliness, the righteousness, the holiness that he's calling us to. Fred? That's that's the adoption into
1: the family of God. Exactly. And the, the divine power, another way like that might be godly ability the ability of God to accomplish the, given to the Christians to accomplish these things in their life.
0: Mm-hmm. Only God could do that. No one else could do it. And that now, that has accomplished salvation for you, and that's now available to you because of that, so to speak.
1: The pile of sins before you found God would be really high, and then, but if you averaged it out over eternity, you probably would it kind of makes it so you don't you don't have that big pile chasing you around your whole life, where you're like, "Man, I, did this. I can't ever repent. I can't ever, I can't ever get back where I was." And you'd have all that guilt, but God kind of just kind of separates that garbage. Well,
0: you can look at it from the perspective of justification. The pile's gone. There's nothing there. From the perspective of sanctification, those old habits and patterns that produced the pile, God's dealing with them. I know I'm not sure your metaphor worked, but I tried to follow on your right, metaphor right. and explain it. Right. Yeah, I was- mean, seriously, justification says the pile is no longer there. You have been declared righteous. Sanctification is saying the habits and patterns of your life that produced the pile, you have to deal with those. And that's what sanctification is all about. And as Fred uh, has done a study of this on his own, that's part of the, the wonder of being in the family of God, of being adopted into the family. You have a whole new identity, whole new set of resources, new brothers and sisters, all the wonderful things that even in the calling the, uh, the God of heaven, your your heavenly father. Now all those wonderful things that are part of our new position in Christ. And that's why Paul, Paul puts it this way. It's, Paul stresses these kind of things more than Peter does, but in Romans six, the power of sin has been broken in your life. That's the, the one of the thesis statements of Romans six, and I'm telling you, when when in 1972, when I came to understand that after I trusted the Lord, that was the, one of the most powerful things for me to get my arms around, because I was, I mean, I was struggling with a bunch of stuff at that point in my life. But the power of sin has been broken. Augustine put it this way before I came to faith in Jesus Christ I could not not sin pardon the double negative I came to faith in Jesus Christ I now have the power to not sin does that sound funny or do you follow that? That's what Paul's saying once, once you come to faith in Jesus Christ you declared righteous the power of sin has been broken in your life and he, as he says in Romans 7 that doesn't mean I'm not going to sin woe is me I do what I don't want to be doing and I can't seem to do what I really want to do woe is me and what's the answer to it Romans chapter 8 it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in your life there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus the struggle's over get on with life in Christ which is a discipline and it's a focus but man and I know a lot of you guys would agree I do not want to go back to my life before (laughs) 1972 I don't want to go back to that. And so Peter is saying the same thing, these magnificent words piled one upon another of the new characteristic of our life. Divine power, which set us free, has been granted all things that were to attain to life and godliness. How do I, how do I now understand that and apply that through the knowledge of Him who called us? Somebody had their hand up. I saw the corner of my eye. Yeah. The,
1: the God, the Godly power, I had a pastor a long time ago explained it that it's a bank account that has no limits. You can draw on it forever and ever and it will never run out. It's a, <laughs> it's a bank account that it. without limits. And, and you know, the deposit <coughs> was made by Christ and all and you have to do is draw on it. You have to go to that and draw that power.
0: Mm. Excellent. Excellent. Now let's look at the rest of verse three. You know it's 12:31, and we've barely got three verses covered. "Who called us through knowledge of Him," again, that connects with verse two there. Knowledge is exactly. the same word. Who called us, called is a salvation word in the New Testament. And um, if I'll step back for now, notice this: called us to what His own glory." and excellence. Pardon me, but I want to excellence because it's quite a rich thought. It really is. ESV translates that word excellence. The Greek word is erete. <clears throat> the reason I put that up there is that is the favorite word of the Greek philosophers. That was Plato's favorite word. Maybe I should say one of his favorite words. That was Aristotle's favorite word. He looked at it from a little bit of a different perspective because they kind of disagreed on some things. But what what Peter is doing is if you want true erete, famous, familiar, wonderful word of the uh, 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 Greco-Roman worldview, you achieve that through Christ. Because he's called you to his own glory. We do all things to the glory of the Lord. It's no longer about me, it's about him. And he leads you toward arate, excellence. Which is certainly one of the great qualities and attributes of our God. So we are taking on his attributes. Not in an infinite, eternal way, but the excellence. So what would that look like? Well, things like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience those qualities and character traits. And so I really, I love that. I love that Paul, I mean, Peter is being intentional here. I, I, I'm pretty sure this would be accurate to say this. He is choosing that word excellence because he's writing to Greco-Roman people. Some of them are Hellenized Jews. I mean, they you know, Jews who are very much influenced by the Greco-Roman world. But nonetheless, true arete comes through Jesus true excellence. That's why I always would tell my students, your goal must be excellence in all that you do, because that's the standard of God. Not for self-elevating pride hubris, another favorite word of the Greeks, but because you're bringing glory to the Lord. It's just, it's a wonderful combination, his own glory and excellence. It's just it's really quite a, a moving uh, verse it's it's a fantastic verse do you think you do you think you got it cuz we're not done yet verse 4 goes with verse 3 <laughs> by his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them through what them refers to the promises you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, that has caused no small amount of discussion. Does he mean that we become like God in his nature? We become omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent? No. He's talking about the moral, ethical life characterized by the arête. Let's put it another way. Do you want me to get real theological, or just stay on the surface? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Two guys. One guy put his arm up. Another guy pretended like he was sliding down a sliding board. Go for it. I'm going to go for
1: it. Go for the desk.
0: When we talk about the divine nature, or we talk about the attributes of God, most theologians, and I think it's helpful to do this, separate the attributes into two categories, the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. Now you can maybe, they're not necessarily terms you and I use every day, but incommunicable and communicable, you can probably figure that out what that means incommunicable means he's unique to God and what would they be well I already mentioned it but the omni attribute I'm not going to write all those out uh, but the omni attributes like omnipresent omnipotent omniscient eternality he's his infinite they're incommunicable no matter what happens to us we're never going to know everything we're never going to have all power that God has to create things, X and nihilo, e, no. But what are the communicable attributes? Love. Oops. Love, a will, emotion, peace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're just put a bunch of ellipsis points here. So when, when Peter is saying... We take on the divine nature. This is what he's talking about. These attributes that characterize God can be manifested and lived out in our lives. We are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So the standard of me loving Peggy is how Jesus loves his church. That's a communicable, that's a divine attribute. And if I'm going to do that, I need the power that Jesus Christ makes available to me through his spirit to pull that off. You following? I'm just using that as an illustration. That's what he's talking about. That's what Peter is talking about here when he speaks of, back to that phrase, in kind of the middle of verse 4, partakers of the divine nature. That's what he's talking about. We, we don't become omniscient and omnipotent and all that. Um, that's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> but we do, we do focus on the transformed life that God is making available to us, which is the goal and end of sanctification, which is um, uh, attained by the power of the Holy Spirit as we rely and depend upon him in faith. We watch this beginning to change and transform our lives. So he's just using these kind of phrases. Wait a minute. Time I got to stop and think about this. What what is he talking about here? And you have to take it apart. You have to think through it. And then you say, "Oh my goodness." Wow. So he his promises that he's made to me have the intended result that I Become a partaker of the communicable attributes that he himself has, what promises here' against that premise, future promises should govern present behavior because of the promises Peter calls them the precious and very great promises. What promises? well, eternal life with him. A glorified resurrected body, to rule and reign with him. I mean, all of those things. That's your destiny. That's your future. That's where things are headed. That's uh, the Greeks used to call it. That's your telos. That's your purpose. That's where you're headed. Man, so the, the counsel is, as I will be then is how I should be living now. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful statement of how we should look at our lives. It's an enormous challenge, but it's a wonderful summary of how we should look at our lives. Go back through the verse 3 again, verse 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through or by means of the knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and arete. He is the standard of herite. He is the standard of excellence. By which he has granted to us precious, variegate promises. So that through them, intended result, you may become partakers of his nature. How's that possible? Because I've escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That used to be what I was, that's not what I am now. And that's how he puts it. I have escaped from the corruption. That I don't know if all of your translations have that, but that's a great word. Corruption is the sinful, deep, rebellious nature against everything God stands for. You've escaped that. It's in the world. World is, doesn't mean the trees out there and the sky and all that. It's that system that stands opposed to God. And then he personalizes it because of sinful desire. That's what you used to be. But you've escaped that. Why? Getting all the way back to the first verse because of your standing. Now, again, I um, as we, we've seen, we, we've we only gotten through four verses, and we spent a lot of time on two verses, verses three and four. But... This is the basis, this meaning, these two verses and what we've just summarized. This is the basis for the growth that he's going to call us to in the next cluster of verses. Let's put it another way. Verse 3 and 4 really define who you are. This is who you are.
1: I'm sorry, they are what
0: again? Verses 3 and 4 really define who you are. Another way of just summarizing your identity. This is who you are. And all these phrases and powerful doctrinal and theological thoughts. Um, Oh, this is... I would love to give you a thought paper assignment on this to see Mm -hmm. if you really got this. But, of course, that'll never happen. So um, just maybe think about it. But, uh, Joel.
1: I was just going to make a comment. Just that phrase, having escaped i guess that kind of implies imprisonment Mm. and Mm. just going back to the very first verse you know simon peter a bond servant so -hmm. kind of the former life of being his to exactly current life of being that's
0: right exactly exactly new allegiance new devotion new master again that's one of the things paul talks about in romans 6 Uh, we have a new master no longer sins jesus Power and bondage of sin has been broken. Now live that way, which is really the point he's trying to make in chapter 6. But, again, because of who you are, live that way. Because of your position, live that way. And so it's just, it's this, it's that the beginning of understanding who I am in Christ. Now start to live that way. And that's... Uh, that's that wonderful difference between justification and sanctification in our lives. My position versus my practice. My position's secure, and I'll start to live that way. And it takes a long time. It really does. But the, the, Peter has just summarized in a, a very unique way. This is a very unique expression of these things in terms of the New Testament. But I hope um, I hope it makes sense. That, does it make sense? The, uh, the, any questions about it? Does it seem pretty clear to you? This seems to do some accountability here, but um, I'm kidding. I know I can't give you assignments, but um, it's it's neat to do this. What he's going to do then in in the next passage? Uh, I'll just introduce it because we're almost out of time. Is it, what's, uh, hopefully all of your translations have this? What's the first phrase of verse five? For,
1: for this very reason. For
0: this very reason because of everything I have just said to you, because everything I've just laid out and declared in kind of flowerly flowery language, this is, this is highly polished Greek here, these three, two verses, we just, that's very polished, it really is. But for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. What faith? The saving faith, the justified faith. Live what you are. So ESV's is translated a Greek word. It's really interesting. Supplement. <laughs> Here's who you are. Here's your identity. You're justified. Now supplement that with living rightly. Isn't that, isn't that a curious way to put it? It's like it's all been done. Christ has done it all for you. You've picked up the gift from the table. It's now yours for this very reason supplement that with the sanctified life that he's calling you to live and so he has some fantastic when we're done we're going to have a list of six of them so if you come back next week I'm going to put on the board six things that he's calling us to okay
1: so if you were a gambler I'm not. Saying, <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, so... Subjective,
0: so subjunctive so mood. Pretend gambler, that I am.
1: So, <laughs> so if you're a gambler, and that's a sin of yours, because you, you abuse it or whatever, and you go over to the casino, but you have the self-control just to go eat the buffet and not gamble, is that better than not going to the casino at all? <laughs> Are you showing more self-control by...
0: You know... um the, the, the way you're framing the question, of course, is loaded. There's no way I can answer it without creating controversy. But um, to me, Matt, the right way to ask that question is given who I was and giving, given what I am now, what's the wisest thing for me to do for entertainment?
1: Just like mom? I mean, Jesus
0: ran. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like it's, what's the wisest thing for me to do? It's it for you. Just to make up the scenario. Suppose you had the habit of gambling. You've broken that. You've gotten victory over it, and you want to take your wife out to a really nice dinner, but not spend a pile of money. That's a good option, but is that a wise option? Not sin to do it and not gamble. It's not sin because I mean, it, it, it's just you ask a question because that's kind of that's kind of the way in which the scriptures would present something like that. Certainly, the way Paul would present it. Uh, what's the wise thing for you to do in a situation like that?
1: Flee.
0: Yeah. The wise thing is probably don't get as close as I can to that former habit of sin I used to have. Stay as far away from it as I possibly can. That's probably the wise thing to do. And it's not... I mean, if you would choose to do it and it would never tempt you, or never. okay, but it's just... You keep going back. It's just... It's just what's wisdom? You know, that old wonderful verse in Proverbs 3, lean not unto your own understanding. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I even, I've walked with the Lord now for a long time, but when I start leaning on my own understanding about things, it usually ends up, that was probably not a really wise thing for me to do. And so it's it's just, and I, I'm not putting it down, but as an example, it, I think the question is, is that an example of me exercising self-control? Well, it could be, but maybe a better way to ask a question in situations like that is, is that a wise thing for me? So in the spirit of wisdom, we're going to pray and go our separate ways, okay? Father in heaven, thank you for uh, 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 Apostle Peter, thank you Holy Spirit for inspiring him to write this book. Thank you for the richness of this text that we spent quite a bit of time just on two verses, but they are incredibly rich um, uh, depths of doctrinal truth as well as a reminder of our position, who we are, what you have done for us, the amazing power and enablement that's available to us, and uh, that you really are calling us to a level of erete, of excellence and godliness that would be impossible without the finished work of Christ. And it's again reminding us in the language that Paul often uses, the difference between justification and sanctification in our life. Our position and our identity, we are righteous in your eyes. That's why we're acceptable to you, because we've applied what Jesus has done to our life by faith. But now we're beginning to learn what it means. We're holding on to the promises and those promises that affect how we live. And it's just the joyous wonder of the bondage to sin has been broken in our life. And we've escaped. We're free to live a whole new life. And the longer we live that life, the more we realize we don't ever want to go back to the old. Thank you for freeing us from the bondage of sin and teaching us day by day what it means to walk with you. And we are we're grateful for that. We are eternally grateful for that. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Take care of these guys as they go their separate ways. All the issues and, and struggles they may have or decisions they need to make or whatever they're dealing with, give them your grace and enablement and enable, help them to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.